This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father, we come before you once again to ask for your teaching to come through. We ask for open hearts that we would receive your word and your spirit, that we would come away with decisions today. In Jesus' name, amen. People have wondered, does the Bible talk about pornography? Does the Bible talk about these issues that we're dealing with this afternoon? There's a Greek word, porneia. Isn't that an interesting word? Same root for our word for pornography. It's translated as fornication, various different things in the English, but we'll just call it porneia. In Matthew 15, verse 19, it says that porneia proceeds from the heart. Jesus, by the way, in Matthew 5, said that you can practice adultery in your mind even while just lusting after a woman who is not your wife. And so this takes place in the mind, in the heart. It's not only a behavior. It's not only a website. It's also what happens in the heart, the desires of the heart. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says we are to flee from porneia. 1 Corinthians 6.18 also says that by practicing porneia, you're sinning against your own body. So here's a good term or euphemism for sexual sin that Spirit of Prophecy employs as a euphemism for masturbation. Self-abuse, because it's a sin against your own body. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says that we should abstain from porneia. Revelation 9 verse 21 identifies those who are receiving the seven last plagues as among them are users of porneia. Revelation 17, verse 2 and verse 4 and 18.3 and 19.2 identifies porneia as the analogy of unfaithful religion or Babylon, if you will, the harlot of Babylon into the fornications or the porneia spiritually. So those are just some Bible verses on the issue. Now we're taking on this issue more deeply and what the Bible says specifically about masturbation. Because I had a unique experience a few years ago to sit in a classroom at a Christian school and the Christian teacher was doing sex ed, sex education for the children that day. And the teacher literally got up in front and said, I'm going to talk to you now about masturbation. And I know that this is something that many of you are engaged in. And I want you to know that as a Christian, this is something that you can rightly engage in and you can behave in this manner. And there's nothing wrong with it. And those of you who have not begun to do it will. And this is normal, acceptable, and expected human behavior for an adolescent in a Christian school. So we are totally confused in our culture about this as, just, as much as we are confused about pornography in general. Wired for Intimacy, a wonderful book by a Christian author. I agree with like 90 plus percent of what's in that book. Awesome science behind a lot of it. But it says, even if you're not viewing actual pornography, if if you're not viewing lustful images, if you're engaged in this behavior, just the physical act of it, masturbation is playing with neurochemical fire. It affects one emotionally and neurologically, says William Struthers, Dr. William Struthers, Christian psychologist. Playing with neurochemical fire. It affects you emotionally, neurologically. It's not something you can just turn on and turn off in the brain because, again, you're setting yourself certain pathways in the brain. Here's what Peter says about it in 1 Peter 2.11. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. What's that next word, everybody? Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 
So what are we supposed to do? Completely abstain from anything that is a fleshly lust, which, of course, this would qualify under that heading, fleshly lusts, and we are to abstain from it. There's a wonderful book called A Solemn Appeal Relative to Solitary Vice and the Abuses and Excesses of the Marriage Relation. Quite a long title. They used to have longer titles for books back in the 19th century, but this is a compilation and much commentary in there from the spirit of prophecy regarding solitary vice. There's lots of euphemisms here. They didn't tend to use the technical medical terminology for it, but self-abuse, solitary vice, etc. are the terms that you find in here. And the excesses of the marriage relation. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But here are the effects. Now, when people go back and read these books, 20th century readers would go back and read Ellen White's statements about this behavior and say, that is ludicrous and silly and nonsense, and they would make fun of it, and they would say, how outdated is that? I mean, we know from modern science that there are no harmful effects, and this is perfectly healthy behavior, and so on and so forth. And so it was ridiculed, even by Seventh-day Adventists, a generation ago, and presently to a certain extent. But anybody who's in the know on the latest science is starting to hit the brakes on some of that ridicule and some of that doubt and question and are saying, whoa, there's something here. Now, I'm going to give you the list. I'm just going to bullet point it. I don't have time to give you all the quotes in their full quoting. I'm just going to give you the list that the anti-Ellen White websites love to put out and say, look at what these ridiculous people believe about masturbation, okay? Here's what we have. Masturbation will cause pain in the shoulders, side, and back. Great exhaustion after exercising or a lack of strength of endurance. By the way, not all of these would be experienced by every behavior of this, of, this, of this behaving vice. A deficiency in the mental strength, being absent-minded. Daydreaming and inattention. These are all symptoms. Forgetfulness, a weak memory, a weakened brain in general. A lack of perseverance and a reluctance to engage in active labor. A gloomy sadness upon the countenance. Frequent exhibitions of a morose temper in those who were once cheerful, kind, and affectionate. Disposed to look upon the dark side. A loss of appetite. Poor sleep. Tired feelings in the morning. Damage to the nervous system. Easily irritated and nervousness. Decay of the skull. This is where they really start to sound crazy. Like, seriously? I mean, this, is, this is inspired. What do we do with this? The health of, a, a health, lack of healthful beauty. The sallow face. The progression of disease upon them. Cancerous tumors. Inflamed mucous membranes. In other words, the common cold. Rheumatism. Weakened eyesight. And dropsy, also known as edema. That's quite a list for us to go and look at the science and say, is this sustainable by the modern understandings? By the way, if it weren't sustainable by the modern understandings, I would still take this on faith because it's inspired, right? We ought to do that. You shouldn't need science, but we tend to subject the Bible and spirit of prophecy to the higher criticism of using the human intellect. How foolish that is. And people are being proven wrong on this right now, as we're going to see. So what does today's science say? According to Cooper and Carnes' research, 21st century research, masturbating as little as two times per week has been shown to increase depression, memory problems, lack of focus, concentration problems, fatigue, back pain, pelvic or testicular pain. Is this starting to sound familiar? We're going to, go, we're going to compare it all in a minute. But also, zinc is a very important mineral to human nutrition and, and proper functioning of various elements of the human physiology. And it aids in the formation of bone and the prevention of bone breakdown. Zinc is important in immunity since it's the first line of defense in the skin and the mucous membranes. It helps to activate immune cells. Zinc is important for normal growth. 
Zinc is important for fighting infections and healing wounds and combating disease in general because it's a component of antioxidants. Zinc is used for, interestingly, diaper rash, to, used to reduce ADHD. It's used to improve skin health. It's used in treatment for rheumatoid arthritis, treatment for macular de degeneration, used by the liver to help bind toxins for removal. It's used for eye health, skin health, to boost mood, and to boost brain health. So that's some of the uses of zinc to help bring positive effects, and you saw the negative effects of zinc deficiencies. But interestingly, zinc is related to the practice of ejaculation, which releases five milligrams of zinc. You need 10 milligrams per day, and up to half of that is removed from the body through ejaculation. So according to PhD MD David Horobin, the amount of zinc in semen is such that one ejaculation may get rid of all the zinc that can be absorbed from the intestines in one day. Repeated ejaculation may lead to a real zinc deficiency with various problems developing. And this is not brand new research either. The White Estate's been putting this out for quite some time to defend against these attacks. And studies have linked zinc deficiency with worse, dim in, worse vision in a dim environment, poor immunity, white spots on the nails, which, by the way, I've, I've looked at message boards of uh, like secular pornography recovery groups. And I've seen references to white spots on the nails that were present while the addiction was in place, but then after the addiction has been overcome, the white spots disappear. Very interesting. That had to do with zinc. Dry skin and acne, also a um, symptom of zinc deficiency, so skin problems. This is from Richard Nyes, PhD in clinical psychology. Masturbation breaks down the finer sensitivities of our nervous system. It is not difficult to see in terms of the electrical mediation of our nervous system how disease becomes a natural result of individuals who have placed their own gratification at the center of their being. Disease is the natural result of this. So let's go back to this list. Do you remember this crazy sounding outlandish list that was ridiculed for so long? Let's categorize these into a few different groups, okay? I've bullet pointed them this way so that we can see this red highlighted section here. Pain in the shoulders back and side, great exhaustion after exercising, lack of strength or endurance, deficiency in mental strength, daydreaming, inattention, forgetfulness, weak memory, weakened brain. Doesn't this sound exactly like what Cooper and Carnes found here in their research? Memory problems, lack of focus, concentration problems, fatigue, back pain, pelvic or testicular pain. So it's already borne out, the first part of the list, to be accurate based upon the latest science. Masturbating as little as two times per week, causing these things. By the way, which always leads married men to ask the question, oh, what do you do then with, I mean, if, if this process of losing zinc, I mean, this is part of procreation and intimacy in marriage, uh, what do we do with that? You remember what the title of that book was? The, the uh, A Solemn Appeal to Mothers Relating to the, um, the, the, the Solitary Vice and the Abuses and Excesses of the marriage relation. So there comes a point where this could be excessive also in marriage. Now you're all wondering, well, how much? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. So I'm not going to tell you. So you'll have to ask the Lord. He'll lead you on that. But here's some interesting research that may be helpful. By the way, there's more going on with this than just uh, the, the, the release of, of zinc and semen. This, this is also their psychological things going on with, as we just heard, selfishness, putting your own gratification at the center of your being. There's something fundamentally different, not just on a, not on a physiological level, but something fundamentally spiritually and emotionally different between relational intimacy of giving and this wonderful, beautiful act that God has given to the, to the marriage bed versus 
the act of solitary vice and self-abuse and selfishness, right? Those are two very different things emotionally, spiritually, and so they'll have effects here that are beyond the mere physiology of zinc, okay? But how about this one right here? See this long, long section of the list? We read in the 19th century from uh, Ellen White's statements that, the, that, that masturbation led to a lack of perseverance, a reluctance to engage in active labor, a gloomy sadness upon the countenance, frequent exhibitions of a morose temper for those who were once cheerful, kind, and affectionate, being disposed to look upon the dark side, loss of appetite, poor sleep, and tired feelings in the morning. Do you know what all these are? These are all symptoms of one thing. Yeah, depression. Cooper and Carnes found increase in depression. And so she's just delineating all the aspects of depression here, an effect of two times per week even. <clears throat> so how about this, these ones? These ones I could not find any studies about, but what I found on the message boards were individuals who would say things like, my tremors are going away. Like, tremors, really? So when you're engaged in these behaviors, having more tremors, disruptions in the nervous system, basically. And so when we see damage to the nervous system, and, and other people would say, I'm less irritable, I have less nervousness and anxiety and just like feelings of tension, I have more peace and more just nervous system balance in my, in my gut and my brain and all of that. So that's borne out by anecdotal evidence on the message boards of pornography recovery um, groups. Now, how about this section of more difficult ones here? Decay of the skull, lack of healthful beauty, and so on and so forth. Let's take these one at a time and how they relate to zinc. You might have been noticing as we were going through zinc, you're like, oh, I remember that thing about this and that. Let me just lay them all out, okay? Zinc is necessary for the formation of bone and the prevention of bone breakdown. Do you remember this? So for the prevention of bone breakdown, you need lots of zinc. So if you don't have sufficient amounts of zinc, do you see how the bone structure of the skull and the body is going to be not growing properly and even breaking down? Interesting. Okay, how about this one? Zinc deficiency causes dry skin, acne, and it's used to improve skin health. It's used in the treatment of diaper rash, so zinc is important in skin health. Well, the lack of healthful beauty in a sallow face caused by this behavior because of a lack of zinc. Zinc also aids in immunity, remember this one, in, in fighting infections and healing wounds and in combating disease as an component of antioxidants. So the progress of disease and cancerous tumors upon the body can take place at a, to a greater extent when the body is zinc deficient. And this body is zinc deficient when this behavior is engaged in habitually. Zinc also, remember, you'll remember, is essential in immunity as the first line in the skin and the mucous membranes. So no surprise that you see the common cold, the inflamed mucous membranes when you're zinc deficient because of self-abuse. Rheumatism, really, yep. Zinc is used in the treatment for rheumatoid arthritis. So if you don't have sufficient zinc, this could be contributing to an increase in rheumatism. Zinc is used in the treatment of macular degeneration. Zinc deficiency causes worse, dim, worse vision in a dim environment. So when she said weakened eyesight, this one was really ridiculed. Like, oh, really, you're going to go blind if you do that? And people just make fun of this, make light of the, the servant of God. You remember what happened to the youth who said, go on up, bald head, and they were making fun of the, the prophet Elisha. I mean, God takes this seriously. We're to take solemnly the counsels that the Lord has given to us. So although the ridicule of decades past, this needs to stop because zinc actually does cause eyesight to be more, more healthy, and you, you see less well in a dim environment, so weakened eyesight. Simple. Dropsy or edema treated with zinc and other nutrients, as we saw. So that pretty much settles it. I'm going, wow, this is a whole lot more credible scientifically than I thought. So as wonderful as it is to take things on faith, 
Sometimes God says, let me provide you the evidence. Then you have no excuses at all to not have faith because there's so much evidence to sustain it. The violation of one of God's precepts does violence to your moral nature. In the Greater Lust series, disc number three is about this issue, and I get more deeply into what we're talking about right now. I refer to this as a violent vice. Because if it's doing violence to not only your moral nature, but your physiology... Mrs. White actually refers to this behavior as self-murder, which you might say, that's a really strong term for it. But if you think about it, say you're a smoker, you're really committing slow-motion suicide, aren't you? Slowly over time, you're increasing your likelihood and chances, just getting closer and closer to that point of having lung cancer and ending up dying because of a certain behavior, whether that's diet, whether that's narcotic drugs, tobacco, or engaging behaviors like we're talking about right now. And a word like self-murder, I mean, we're violating the precepts of God with that, aren't we? I mean, if you think about the Ten Commandments, and think about how these behaviors we're talking about with lust, pornography, self-abuse, all of these, let's go through the Ten Commandments just a second. Have no other gods before me. Sometimes we put things before God, our own pleasure, don't we? Then we've got an idol in our lives, which is linked to that. It might not be a physical idol, but it's certainly an idol just as real. Taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Vainly taking the name of God. I take his name. I am a Christian. I take the name of Christ. But is it in vain? Is it through a pretense? Is it a fraud? Is it phony? That's another way of taking the name of the Lord in vain, other than saying his name in a disrespectful way. How about the Sabbath day? Many people will engage in these behaviors on the Sabbath day. Honoring your father and mother, is this something your parents would be proud of? Of course, we're looking at a fifth commandment issue as well there. And then you've got the remaining ones with adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Obviously, that one is violated here. Lying, we're always covering up our tracks when it comes to these secret sins, as they're called in spirit of prophecy. So adultery, thou shalt not lie, bear false witness, um, kill. Now you might say, really, kill? Didn't we just go over this effects to the physiology and this reference of self-murder? So we're looking at literally, we go down to covet. You're coveting something that's not yours. It belongs to somebody else. It's not your wife, right? And you're desiring that. Which one did I miss? Oh, yeah, stealing something that's not yours. You're, you're seizing sexual pleasures and experiences with individuals on a screen that are not yours. So, boy, we just really kind of did violence to our moral nature and to God's law. And I'm not saying these things to heap additional guilt and shame on the struggling soul who needs the the Savior at the pool of Bethesda. I've covered all of that because that's important to start with, but I know that there are some of us where we kick against the goads and we don't want to hear truth. If you're one of those people who's just absolutely melted by the love of God right now and you're ready to go and do anything, you've already had your conscience quickened, okay? Right now with this, I'm speaking to the hardened heart that maybe the Lord would break through, that we have really done violence to ourselves and to our moral nature, violated God's law, and truly broken his heart. Now, if you're in the situation of, again, that you're ready to walk forward in newness of life, don't let the accuser put you down, okay? He wants you to walk forward starting right now. But how about this? This is really interesting. It says in mind, character, and personality, not only does God require you to control your thoughts, but also your passions and affections. Your salvation depends upon you, your governing yourself in these things. That's an important statement because when the Bible talks about salvation, it doesn't talk about it solely in the terms of forgiveness and legal pardon. 
Salvation is a freeing from sins, but it's also a reclaiming from sins. What do I mean by that? When I am in Christ, I am a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The experience of salvation is having a transformed mind, a renewed mind, a new nature, a new life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is the the mind of Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. The biblical descriptions of salvation, in fact, the very word salvation means to heal. To be healed of a sin-sick soul that I was born with. We were all born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and then we subsequently made choices to rebel against God. But he wants to give us complete and total healing from that. Forgiveness from our sins is only the starting point of the journey, not the finish line. When I start on this journey and I receive the righteousness of Christ, I am a totally new creation. I've had all my sins forgiven. But I can't just walk forward now in rebellion, presumptuously saying, well, all I need to do is ask forgiveness each time, and then I'm saved and can be in heaven. And I will continue to sin and insist on being able to continue to sin until Christ returns. This is not biblical. I grew up with this theology. I thought as a young person, I literally lived in total rebellion. Played in a rock band, did the alcohol, everything, you know, and it's in total rebellion. And I, would, I, I thought I was a Christian the whole time, listening to totally satanic music, you name it. Just, I won't get into all the lurid evils of my teen years, but I would literally go to bed at night and I would ask the Lord's forgiveness for every willful, presumptuous, just absolutely haughty sin that I engaged in in the face of a holy God, and I thought I was justified before the Lord by doing that. Uh, That was a life of rebellion with a form of religion, but denying the power thereof, and it's not acceptable to God. He will say to many, I never knew you. And so let let this be true of us, that our salvation depends on governing ourselves in these things. But this isn't the only statement, governing ourselves by whose power, mine or God's? (laughs) Absolutely, I hope that goes without saying. But here's here's the warning. Solemn messages from heaven cannot forcibly impress the hearts that is not fortified against the indulgence of this degrading vice. So in other words, when we are engaged in this degrading vice, we will not hear the voice of God to the same extent that we would be able to if we were living a pure life by his grace and his strength. Will they sacrifice comeliness, health, intellect, and all hope of heaven, everything worth possessing here and hereafter, to the demon passion? May God grant that it may be otherwise. Strong statement there. I hope we're hearing this. This psalm jumped off the pages to me as I was reading this. As in preparation for the seminar, A Greater Lust, when it, right before I recorded this a uh, year and a half ago, I was in my devotions at Psalm 38. And you ever see how the Lord, when you're in the Word, He will bring things to you that you need at a particular time, won't He? And I saw things in this psalm, and the Spirit was just showing things in this that I had never seen before. And you judge for yourself. I've never heard this take on Psalm 38, but now knowing what you know about the effects of lust addictions and masturbatory habits, here we have Psalm 38, which seems to be getting into, touching into these waters a bit. Verse 2 says, Your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. So the psalmist here in verse 2 is feeling a sense of condemnation, of, of judgment from God. There's no soundness in my flesh, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. Hmm, interesting. I am troubled. I go bowed down greatly in mourning all the day long. Depression? For my loins are full of inflammation. This word loins in the Hebrew would be pelvic side back area, full of inflammation. Hmm. I am very, I'm feeble and severely broken. 
I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. So somebody who is broken at an emotional deep level, turmoil in his heart. My heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. Those who also seek my life lay snares for me and plan the deception all the day long. So Satan knows how to get him in this particular sin over and over again. I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. And therefore, I am like a man who does not hear. So secret sin, not divulging, going before the Lord in true vulnerable openness. In you, O Lord, I hope. Oh, here, listen, a moment of glimmer of hope. You will hear, O Lord, my God. But then he says, I am ready to fall. Does this not sound like the cycle of sexual addiction and sexual behaviors with all of these things? And he says, my sorrow is continual before me, so the depression continues. So what does this sound like? Feeling condemnation and shame, having skin abnormalities and unhealthy body. He said, my flesh and my bones, unhealthy bones. Depression definitely coming through there. Loins, back, or side pain. A wounded heart with emotional pain. This is... In increased heart rate, fatigue, weakened vision. Is this sounding familiar? Isolation, snares all around to entrap. He keeps it secret and then doesn't hear a solution. Glimmers of hope in God, which is followed by failing and falling and a sorrowful future of expecting to continue to struggle with this. But then things change for him. And I'm sure this psalm can mean many different things to many different people speaking into your particular situations in life. And whether this psalmist was struggling with this issue or not, I don't know for certain. But I believe that these words are here for us today. He says, I will declare my iniquity. This is true confession. I will be in anguish over my sin. True, deep repentance. My enemies are vigorous. They are strong. So he recognizes that this battle is not something he can do with normal weaponry and tools of human strength. He says, do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. That's the prayer each one of us needs to have, isn't it? With every temptation. Maybe your temptation has nothing to do with what I'm talking about here. You're here just to learn some things. But every single person in here has a unique temptation that Satan tends to get you on more than others. And that's the prayer for each one of us. Make haste to help me. Didn't we read earlier in Ministry of Healing... Seek him as one who desires to be found by you. He wants to come in and save and heal. He's not some aloof, distant, condemning God looking down and saying, why don't you get your act together? What's wrong with you? Maybe you've heard voices like that in your life, but that's not the voice of your Father in heaven at all. His voice is to draw near to each one of us, and he will be there to help. Now, I want to give you some tips, some skills, tools, to take this battle on in a practical way in our lives. We learned last session about the lust cascade, about this process of seeing the image and it leads to this, that, this, and that. Where in this process can we have some control in our lives? How do we gain victory over lust? Here's where we begin. This is from Testimonies on Sexual Behavior. The purity, the holiness of the life of Jesus as presented from the word of God, possess more power to reform and transform the character than do all the efforts put forth in picturing the sins and crimes of men and their sure results. So I've omitted 
several hours of statistics on how pervasive, how harmful the pornography industry is, how you are taking advantage of other souls. We're going to get into that, actually, because we're going to think about altruism and other-centered love. But we all know we're living in a pornographic world. I think we all know it's pervasive and terribly damaging and absolutely life and family-destroying and toxic to the core. It's ruining millions of people's lives and present life and eternal life. Got it. So we don't need to just picture the results of it. We already know and we've, we've got to touch on that. That's important. But here's the ultimate solution. One steadfast look to the Savior uplifted on the cross will do more to purify the mind and heart from every defilement than will all the scientific explanations by the ablest tongue. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it almost becomes something that we've said so many times and heard so many times that we, it doesn't hit us with the depth and the reality that Jesus truly is the answer to this. Well, I got that, Scott. I know. I've heard that a million times in the church. Jesus in the... No, 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 no. You haven't got it. Like, we've got to get this deeper, more often, more thoughts of Jesus, more beholding the life of Christ, one steadfast look upon him on the cross. This is the solution with a capital S. There's more to say about this, about how this manifests in our lives, but that's ultimately... The solution. They found actually in addiction recovery and research that people who engage in more prayer are less addiction prone. If you are engaging in less prayer, you are more addiction prone. Isn't that interesting? So there is actually, and this is why even secular people go to Alcoholics Anonymous and they start appealing to a higher power. And it's not specifically Christian and it's you know, people from all walks of life, but they realize there's something to needing help from an outside force. We know that to be Jesus Christ. Individuals who personalize their religion, cultivate faith in God, and internalize spiritual values have better coping skills and less depression amidst life's challenges. So research is actually showing that Jesus is the answer. Isn't that something wonderful there? National Institute for Healthcare Research <clears throat> reviewed 200 studies on spirituality and health, and they found that the positive effects outweigh the negative 10 to 1. You might be like, what ne negative effects? What negative effects? Those would be the negative effects of twisted, counterfeit, forms of religion, okay? But they just studied religion as it's practiced. And even with all its flaws, in Babylon, we're seeing 10 to 1, positive to negative, versus having no religious faith at all. Isn't that amazing? New directors in psychological science looked at 15 health indicators. Those people who were active in religious faith were better in 100% of these health indicators. Do you ever see 100% of anything in research? That's pretty rare. That's awesome. That's really exciting. Being active in your religious faith 100% better in all the health end indicators. Robert Sapolsky, an atheist, he wrote a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And he said on page 317, he basically really honestly assessed the situation. He says, if somebody believes in a God who answers prayer, has discernible rules, and isn't out to get you, then the stress-reducing advantage must be extraordinary. Do we believe that? Absolutely, right? We believe in a God who is love, who is not out to get us, but he's out to reclaim us, to get us, to save us. And, of course, answers prayer and, of course, has discernible rules in the Ten Commandments. And so that's extraordinarily stress-reducing. So basically, that's going to help with overcoming addictions and health in general. So they're seeing it. Now, we know this from the spirit of prophecy. The spirit was given, to be, uh, to, given as a regenerating agent. And without this, without the Holy Spirit, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead. It is the Spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out 
by the world's redeemer. It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. So the Spirit of God will be doing this work in us. The Holy Spirit never leaves unassisted the soul who is looking unto Jesus. He takes of the things of Christ and shows them unto him. If the eye is kept fixed on Christ, the work of the Spirit ceases not until the soul is conformed to his image. I think that means every one of us has the Spirit working on us to this day. Because this this work ceases not until the the soul is conformed into his image. The pure element of love will expand the soul. This is key. The pure element of love will expand the soul, giving it a capacity for higher attainments. So we're seeing literally brain neurology changes, circuitry changes in there, widened pathways of altruism and love, giving you a higher capacity. Since the pathways are widened, you can think and feel those thoughts more for increased knowledge of heavenly things so that it will not rest short of the fullness. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I was thinking about this in the context of the women who are abused, who are captive, who are in this system voluntarily and sometimes through non-voluntary situations and through uh, depression and drug use and prostitution, you name it. you, You look at the image and the thoughts of a person in this industry caught up in selling their body for the pleasure of men viewing their pornographic videos and images on a computer. And if you think altruistically about that person, think for a moment, the next time you see an image of a woman being, being uh, objectified in some way, turned into uh, just an image for the consumption and pleasure. We, talk, we call it pornography consumption, right? That's kind of what it is. It's, just, it's not a two-way thing at all. But if you're thinking about that person and you're thinking about their story, what have they gone through? Think about, what if that was my sister? What if that was my mother? Right? And all of a sudden, the pathways in the brain that are seeking to take advantage of that person are totally overcome and overwritten by true thoughts of love and interest for that person's benefit. And that's the ultimate solution neurologically here. Because overcoming our sin problem, we can't view it as trying to not do something. If you say, I'm not going to engage in this behavior, I'm not going to think these thoughts, I'm not going to do this or that, then the question is, what are you doing to replace it? Let me use a little analogy here, okay? I want everybody in the room to not think about a pink elephant right now. Everybody thought about a pink elephant. Try Try hard not to. Don't think about a pink elephant. But now you're thinking about it, right? So trying not to do something is a futile effort. We have to try to do something else. Addiction recovery or rewriting our sinful pathways of our brains is not the process merely of unlearning a behavior. It's the process of learning a new behavior. And when the mind learns a new behavior, it forms its pathways and connections around a whole different way of thinking and doing and being. And that's what I'm talking about here. If we're thinking truly, like we've just read, the pure element of love will expand in the soul, Those two areas of the brain can't simultaneously fire. It's just that they can't. They can't coexist. That's what Paul was talking about with salt coming out of a fresh spout. I believe that the reason why many find the Christian life so deplorably hard, why they are so fickle, so variable, is they try to attach themselves to Christ without first detaching themselves from some of these cherished idols. From these cherished idols. Isn't that a helpful statement there? 
Until we renounce self and selfishness, we need this pure element of love. Until we renounce self and selfishness, we really can't appreciate God's selfless character. Only the unselfish heart, the humble and trustful spirit, shall see God as merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. What it means to be converted is to be converted from self to God and others. That's pretty much the summation of what it means to be a Christian. That my life is lived for the love of God and love of others, not love of self. And that doesn't come from within me. That comes from a regenerating power called the Holy Spirit, the being, the third person of the Trinity, the love of God being implanted in the soul is the only way I can access that. Is this works salvation, Scott, to say that we must govern ourselves in these things in order to have our salvation secured? That's what we just read. Your salvation depends on yourself governing yourself in these things. Let me be clear on something. The ability to repent... The ability to have faith. These are something in themselves that are a gift from God. Have you ever read in the Bible where it says that he has granted repentance unto Israel? And that he has granted to each a measure of faith? So I can't muster from within myself faith or repentance. I can choose to receive the gift of God in the Holy Spirit, which is bringing me to repentance and bringing me to faith. The only way to salvation is God's grace through faith. And I exercise that faith only through the strength and the enabling that he gives me. Folks, we can't even breathe without him giving us that breath, right? So to start thinking this is some works thing, think again, that's a joke. You're not going to accomplish anything without the power and strength of God in your life. But does that mean we are passive? Does that mean we take no actions? No, we must exercise that faith. We must allow the spiritual power of Christ to work in us. But I'm dead in sin and trespasses. I need that regenerating power. So here's a summation. The power is all of God. The righteousness is all Christ's that he's wrought out on the cross. The glory is all to God. But the responsibility to receive this is all right here. All the glory to God, all the strength and power to God, all the solutions are God's. But the responsibility for my salvation lies at my own doorstep. Will I exercise that faith that he enables me to give? God doesn't do for us what we can do for ourselves. He doesn't take over our bodies and just say, I'm going to force you to be a Christian. He says, ask and you will receive. He says, seek and you will find. So we must ask. We must seek. Knock. The door might be opened. The Bible says to abide in him. We must abide. We must look and live. The look part is our part that God will give us the strength to do. So everything regarding our salvation depends upon our own course of action because God has done his part. Now he's asking us to step forward in faith. So I'm not going to be saved in doing nothing. This is why the apostle said faith without works is dead because you can't just say, well, I have faith, right? I believe in God. Well, even the demons believe in shudder. So to know that there is a God and to even call him Lord, as Jesus said, may not be enough that we need to have that True hunger and thirst for righteousness. Only then will we be filled. Is that clear on the work salvation thing? (sighs) Make sure I'm not leaving anything off there. Yeah, that's good. How about this quote, though? He loved you and gave himself for you. His great heart of love is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. What sins are too great for him to pardon? What soul too dark and sin oppressed for him to save? So if you're in a situation of self-deprecation, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, whatever. No, no, no. What soul is too dark and sin-oppressed for him to save? That's a rhetorical question, meaning there aren't any. (laughs) He is gracious, not looking for merit in us, 
If we're trying to present merit to God, that's a joke, right? He's gracious, not looking for merit in us, but of his own boundless goodness, healing our backslidings, loving us freely while we are yet sinners. He is slow to anger and of great kindness, long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So that's the message we have today. None are so vile. None have fallen so low. Are you hearing this? None are so vile. None have fallen so low as to be beyond the working of this power. In all who will submit themselves to the Holy Spirit, a new principle of life is to be implanted. The lost image of God is to be restored in humanity. Lost, not just defaced. We may be so deep in sin, it's like as if we've annihilated every impulse for good. That lost image of God will be restored in your humanity. That's a promise, folks. But man cannot transform himself by the exercise of his will. He possesses no power by which this change can be effected. The leaven, something wholly from without, must be put into the meal before the desired change can be wrought in it. So the grace of God must be received by the sinner before he can be fitted for the kingdom of glory. All the culture and education which the world can give will fail of making a degraded child, uh, making a degraded child of sin into a child of heaven. The renewing energy must come from God. The change can be made only through the Holy Spirit. All who would be saved, high or low, rich or poor, must submit to the working of this power. No mere external change is sufficient to bring us into harmony with God. Because you can reform, you can make some positive changes, but those break down eventually. This is talking, not talking about external change. There are many who try to reform by correcting this or that bad habit. They hope in this way to become Christians. They are beginning in the wrong place. Our first work is with the heart. A profession of faith and the possession of truth in the soul are two different things. The mere knowledge of truth is not enough. We may possess this, but the tenor of our thoughts may not be changed. The heart must be converted and sanctified. And what does that mean? Converted from self to God and others, to thinking of his glory, loving him supremely above all else, thinking of the best interest of others as the aim and wellspring and purpose of my life. Christ prayed, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. There's a wonderful quote from Christ's Object Lessons, the last part of it here. The truths of the word of God meet man's great practical necessity, the conversion of the soul through faith. Their vital influence is to be woven into the human experience. They are to permeate all the great things and all the little things of life. Received into the heart, the leaven of truth will regulate the desires, purify the thoughts. It enlarges the capacity for feeling, for loving. This love masters every other motive. The reason I call the seminar a greater lust is because the Greek word for lust just means a desire. It doesn't necessarily mean an unholy desire. And so if we have a greater and holier desire that overwrites and rewrites all of the depraved desires that we have in our lives, then we fulfill this. This love masters every other motive and raises its possessor above the corrupting influences of the world. The word of God is to have a sanctifying effect on our association with every member of the human family. Even that woman you don't know who's on the screen, right? You ever seen a cloth become dyed? If we live this way, then our religious faith will not merely be one influence among many others. I think this is the biggest problem with the vast majority of Christians in the churches today. Religion is one aspect of our lives instead of it being our lives. Listen to this. Its influence is to be supreme, pervading and controlling every other influence. It is not like a dash of color brushed here and there upon the canvas, but it is to pervade the whole life as if the canvas were dipped into the color until every thread of the fabric were dyed a deep, unfading hue. 
That's what our religious life, walking with God like Enoch did, needs to be like. So I'm back to this question, how to stop the lust cascade from happening. Because the bottom line is, as we've seen, we need a connection with Jesus Christ. We need to exercise faith moment by moment. We need to walk with him. But there's, there's more to this because we need not just a form of religion. We need a new obsession. I mean, we're obsessed with the things of this world, right? We need a new and higher and holier absolute desire and totally new brain map. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 12, verse 2, when he said that you can have a renewed mind. This is physiologically, neurologically something real. So when I try hard to not do something, I try not to do something, we just illustrated with the pink elephants that that is not possible. So addiction is about the structural change that took place in the brain to begin with. So you know what the solution is? is new structural change. change, New pathways to replace the old. Think about it this way. The neurological trough, if you will, the channel that you've etched into your brain map, the lust cascade, going down that same pathway, that's not something that formed overnight, right? Over years, that's become widened and widened and widened. For that to shrivel down neurologically, which it will literally do, We have to over and over and over again choose a a different pathway. And then over time, that's going to begin to disappear. And we will see the structural changes in the brain. This is from William Struthers again, Wired for Intimacy. He explains, if this corrupted pathway can be avoided, a new pathway can be formed. You're not going to think about nothing. You will go down a different pathway when you're faced with a temptation. We can establish a healthy sexual pattern where the flow is redirected toward holiness rather than corrupted intimacy. By intentionally redirecting the neurochemical flow, the path toward right thinking becomes the, oh, wouldn't this be great? The preferred path and is established as the mental habit. By deepening the holiness pathways, we are freed from deciding to do what is right and and, and good as they become part of our embodied nature. Have you read that statement in Spirit of Prophecy that says we would be carrying out our own impulses in doing God's will? Once we have the mind of Christ, I want that. I want to be impulsively obedient. I want to have a situation where I can't help but be disgusted by something that used to allure me and is so attractive to the world and to my old self. But I know now how destructive it is, how hurtful to that person is, how hurtful it is to my own soul and to the kingdom of God in the name of Christ as I represent him in this world. I want to have that desire that is so redirected initially and intentionally through the new habits. Because if the brain is powerful enough to get you addicted to a behavior, folks, then the brain is just as powerful to get you addicted to a new behavior. That's a big insight for me. You can be addicted, if you will, to absolutely having a righteous indignation when you see a woman objectified in a picture. Where you, where you see that and you get a little upset about it because you know how wrong it is. That can be the new, the new pathway, the new habit. Specifically, the Bible says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Rivers in the desert? That sounds like... Niagara Falls going upward, rivers in the desert. Is God into doing miracles? If he can create you, do you think he can create a new you? 
I mean, this is a God of miracles we're talking about, and you'll need miracles for this battle because Satan knows exactly what he's doing. He's been studying us for 6,000 years, and he's devised his deceptions and temptations in such an alluring way that the vast majority will be caught in his net, but it's not needed because he is doing rivers in the wilderness business. But notice what this says. Behold, I will do a new thing, a new thing. That's a phrase that should echo through our minds as we're seeking a new mental map of the way we engage with the world. Behold, I will do a new thing. Behold, I will do a new thing. So he's going to have me completely rerouting my whole life around new thoughts, new behaviors. Anything new is good. And you, I literally mean that, anything new. What they found in addiction recovery and like literally just doing anything new like spring cleaning, rearranging the books on your bookshelf, changing the furniture in your house, like anything new starts to activate new neural pathways. And as silly and unnecessary and unhelpful as that might seem, Every new thing you can do in your life is going to help you form new pathways that become a new habit, that start to get your mind obsessed over new things. Most importantly, form new habits over Bible study and scripture memorization. Man, why, how, how about, what if I had a scripture memory verse at my disposal every time a alluring image raised its ugly head? What if, oh, how about this? What if I was walking with Christ so closely every day that my thoughts were on God and, or I was whispering a prayer to God every time right before an image showed up to attract me. If I had that kind of relationship with Christ and I had this kind of new brain map, then you've got the new in place. The old has gone, the new has come. And this could mean, in certain situations, a new cell phone device, a new computer, just like doing away with the old things that are wired together in our brains. My brain associates that place in my living room or whatever with sinful behaviors and sinful actions. And so, new, newness, just just little things like that can actually help. Now, of course, these are minuscule compared to what we've already talked about in terms of having the Holy Spirit speaking to us and having a new nature in Christ. But just these little tips have been helpful for many people. What is the mental map of the brain filled with? They did a study in UCLA, uh, the, the, the University of California, Los Angeles, where they had subjects think about their love for their spouse. And then they showed them, they, they let the people go through a slideshow with their own slide device and they would, they would have images of the opposite sex, and some of them would be, like, super sexualized. And what they found was the control group who weren't uh, primed with thoughts of love for their spouse would dwell on those images longer than the people who had just been thinking about the love for their spouse. So the people who were thinking of the love for their spouse would quickly skip through the images of sexually attractive um, people of the opposite sex. Isn't that amazing? These aren't even people who are motivated by a Christian impulse. So the bottom line is, if my mind is set upon love for others and love for God, then it doesn't want those things of the world. You follow? It says in Romans 6, 16, Do, not, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So when I say addicted to purity in a pornographic world, enslaved to being compulsively obedient, this is what Paul is talking about here. That's not something I came up with. Here you have Wired for Intimacy again, William Struthers. He says, imagine that you could be neurologically enslaved to purity rather than porn. Enslaved to seeing the dignity of each individual rather than their utility to you. The process of sanctification is an addiction to holiness, a compulsive fixation on Christ, and an impulsive pattern of compassion, virtue, and love. Boy, he nailed that one out of the park there. Now just some more practical tips to stop the lust cascade from happening and for that pathway to be going down. 
One thing that can be very helpful is a deep breath. So that image appears, you're walking, you know, driving down the road, billboard, you're in the mall or whatever. By the way, there are probably certain places you should stay away from. Probably shouldn't be watching the sports because they know how to advertise to men during the beer commercials and all that. Maybe there's certain beaches we don't want to be going to. So the mall, you know Victoria's Secret's right there. Probably not a good place to be walking by if you're trying to be visually and sexually pure in your thoughts and where your eyes go. But anyway, let's say an image hits you because you're not being presumptuous and inviting temptation and making provision for the flesh, but you're just living your life and boom, something hits you. Taking a deep breath, breathing correctly, like Spirit of Prophecy describes from the diaphragm, actually does something to the brain. And what it does is there's this nerve in the upper back area of the neck that links into the limbic system into the brain there. And it's called the dorsal vagal nerve. And it actually is calmed by a deep respiration, which we read over 100 years ago, a good respiration soothes the nerves. The dorsal vagal nerve is soothed by a deep respiration. I just love Spirit of Prophecy. It's so, just so true. So taking that breath calms the nerve that links into your limbic system, which is the area for all of these desires and fleshly uh, compulsive patterns. So you can calm that just by a deep breath. Now that in itself isn't the solution, but all of these things together come forward to help and give you a helpful picture for this. It's hard, by the way, to remember, not to, to remember to breathe properly. So sometimes it's good just to take breaks in your day. Make sure you're not getting stressed and anxious and so on and so forth. Because one thing they've found about pornography addicts is they are much more prone to, uh, to isolation, also to depression, and to anxiety. So men in our culture, many of us were not affirmed and encouraged as children. And so we feel a constant need to perform and if I'm not achieving and accomplishing and performing, then my value and I've, my sense of being a man is damaged and wounded. And so I'm constantly either stressed because I'm going full throttle trying to be somebody or I'm depressed because I feel like I'm not measuring up. People who are having more depressed and depression and stress are more inclined toward pornographic addiction. So just a thought on that on breathing and recognizing that God has already given you your worth and identity and purpose in life, just being a child of his. He says, you're my son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. So dorsal vagal nerve, pretty interesting. This, what's, what, what, why is there a trampoline on the, on the screen, Scott? Okay, this has been helpful to me in terms of thinking about uh, a phrase that, I, that, I, that I, has helped me as I navigate the world around me, and that is bouncing into holiness, Bouncing into holiness. What are you talking about? Okay, well, think about this. You're going to have a image, a uh, provocation take place where something hits your eyes, okay? Now, you know about that lust cascade. The fact that the hypothalamus says, I desire food, sex, and, and water, you know, that's not going anywhere. But the second look at that image, that millisecond where you can have some control over it, that moment where you... Behold that image for a moment or you let it think, you know, go through the brain instead of immediately putting your mind on the scripture memory upon Christ in the sanctuary, right? I mean, something holy. If you're, if you're beholding that image, that's where the occipital lobe fills up with activity and the male brain just starts to shut down. The prefrontal cortex starts to shut down and you're just obsessing on these images. You just love them. They're just, they're just amazing images and they captivate the brain and hypnotize the brain and all of that. Instead of going down that lust cascade, let's take this, this uh, impulse that Satan put in our path and let's do like a judo move, okay? I'm not into martial arts, but I'm familiar with the concept of, of judo. And it basically is you take the enemy's momentum and you put it on him. And you defeat him with his own efforts to defeat you. Okay? So this is what we can do on Satan. 
He tries to defeat us through this, and we can, we can use that bounce to, a, to, to, to become actually a catalyst for greater holiness. What am I talking about? Okay, the image hits you. Instead of taking advantage of that beautiful picture and consuming that image and taking advantage of that person, you think of the infinite value and worth of every woman who is trapped in, these, in, the, in the sex trade, in the pornography, in the prostitution, and you name it, and you start to have that heart of yearning and desire for salvation and for people to be protected. There's these, these guys that I heard about a, about a decade ago, and they would literally go undercover into Thailand, and they would pretend to be hiring out the services of some young girl, some, some you know, person who's been enslaved into, this, into the sex trade, and they would, they would take her and they would rescue her and get her out of the country, which I just found to be very, you know, that's, that's, that's an interesting thing to do, that these guys were putting their lives on the line like that. And so if you're thinking about others' best interest, again, you're not thinking about taking the, 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 the experience of pleasure for yourself. Or how about this one? I mentioned a second ago, you're thinking of Christ in the sanctuary. So this bounce is going to take place. You bounce heavenward. Instead of bouncing off of the cliff into the abyss of lust and lustful practices, you allow this temptation to be a judo move upon Satan. You say, no, you're not going to get me on this. In fact, this is going to draw me closer to Jesus Christ. Because every temptation, every pitfall, every challenge in my life, God is permitting for my embetterment, for me to become closer to him, to become more holy. And so when that comes at you, you flip it on its head and say, I'm going to bounce heavenward with this, and I'm going to think of Christ blotting out my sins in the sanctuary. I mean, how non-sexual is the, the, the salvation redemption plan? Obviously, this is totally different wiring in the brain. Wonderful replacements for the degraded pathways in the brain. Or here's another one. This is one that as I, you know, I was walking down the airport terminal, and for some reason, it's a mall also, and uh, they, they had the, the Victoria's Secret there. And I remember this, this phrase popped into my head, no thank you. I don't know if that would be helpful to you, but it's something that's helpful. It's an offer. Satan's plucked the, the, the fruit off of the tree, and he's saying, take this. Well, the phrase no thank you is a phrase we're accustomed to saying when we don't want something. We, do, we want to say no to something. So just that phrase goes through the pathways of our brain of denying something and being final about it. No thank you. Or how about this one? This one really helps me as I think about the, the higher motives here. And I mentioned this earlier. Thinking about this woman, is, what if, what if you, this was your mother, your sister, in this situation of being objectified in that manner? Then all of a sudden you have those altruistic, those altruistic um, motives and impulses. But you know what the best way to take this bounce? You know, you're going to bounce somewhere. Why don't I bounce in a productive direction? The ultimate way to do this is to recognize... Just start praying. Say, God, I know that you have given each one of us a wiring within our makeup that we are, in part, sexual beings, that that's a part of us to draw us into a deeper relationship with our spouse. And if you're married, you can immediately start thinking of your love for your spouse. If you're not married, you can also go even deeper. Because remember, the picture of husband and wife is merely a type or a reflection of the relationship of God within the Trinity and of God with us. And so now all of a sudden, those needs for intimacy, this Twinkie has been thrown out there, the little capsules faking the scent of the female gypsy moth has been put out there, and you're going, no, 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 I don't want that. I want the real thing. I want true intimacy. And start dwelling upon the love of your Father in heaven and the love that that God has within the Godhead. These are the highest themes that the mind can dwell upon. 
And when you rewrite the brain map along these lines, you're completely, totally upending Satan's temptations. And you're removing that from your brain completely. Now, I have more on this. And we have another session tomorrow. And another session Sabbath. So think through what we've said so far. But we're kind of just hitting pause on the presentation right now. Because to get deeper into the spiritual experience of this, there are practical things like we've been talking about. And of course, find accountability. If you're, a, if you're into pornography addiction, you need accountability. You need the websites you visit being emailed to a trusted friend. You know, Covenant Eyes is great software on that. But of course, that doesn't solve the problem because there are people who can always find ways to lust without you know, those reports um, finding their way to the trusted accountability friend. But another thing, too, I want to mention since I brought that up, Many people in the evangelical community feel that divulging all of their private sins and dark behaviors and thoughts to many people is the best path to finding salvation and and healing from this. And I I don't think that that is supported by the Bible and spirit of prophecy. I'm not about the confessional where we go and we confess our sins to the priest, right? We confess our sins to the priest, meaning Jesus, the high priest. And so they've done studies on women, on wives, who have had husbands who are engaged in the pornographic addictions, adultery. And when the husband divulges all of this to the wife in a staggered disclosure, telling things that it would be better that you know, she doesn't need to know every deep, dark thought, and you know, that's just a burden on her that's totally not necessary. But what they found is the psychological profile of a woman who's learned all the deep, dark secrets of the dark world that the husband has been engaged in, and he staggers this disclosure to her, she has the psychological profile of a rape victim. Okay, so just be aware of that. And yes, we need to confess our sins before God. We need to make things right when we've wounded and hurt another. And just, just think through that. There, there's some good spirit of prophecy on this, by the way, in terms of do we want to just like, should I never tell anybody? How do I handle that? Let me give you one quote on that. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I felt the need to, to throw this in here right now because if I don't say this now, somebody may go and feel impressed and, and do something in a impulsive manner, but where is my confessional? Did, I, did you see an image of a confessional on the screen yet? Huh, did I not put that in? Well, basically, there's a statement in mind, character, and personality that says that the inexperienced need help. They need, they need guidance. And so for you to go to a brother in Christ, somebody that you think is a, somebody who's, who's along on the journey and they can offer some, some help, then go to them and say, you know, hey, this is what we all struggle with. How, do you, how are you gaining victories in this? And, and when we start talking like that and, and, and start sharing ideas, that's going to help. It doesn't mean we're divulging everything, right? And, and talking about all of our secret sins. We confess our secret sins to God. But nonetheless, there is that statement, and I want to find it and bring it to you. I just found it. Mind, character, and personality, 764, says, the, ex- the inexperienced need to be guided with wise counsel when in trial and assailed with temptation. So there's a lot of statements about not, you know, doing the confessional thing. But then there's that one as a balancing statement as well, that you can't walk this journey alone, especially without the Lord. Let's ask for his presence in this journey. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time we've had to deal with these tough issues. And I know there are many who are striving for mastery over this and who've felt burdened with guilt and shame. And I just pray that you would relieve them of that and empower them, that we might have the actual practical skills and tools from your word to 
have your word hidden in our heart that we might not sin against you. And many more things that we need to discuss, but as we are short on time during this session, we just ask for your grace, which is sufficient for us, that you would be made perfect, that your strength would be made perfect in our weakness. We thank you, Jesus, for this time to be together at GYC, to seek you, to know you better, to understand our calling, to understand that we are chosen of you to do a work and that we can only be faithful through your power in our lives. I thank you also that this is a time where we come face to face with the person in the mirror and where we are called by you to relinquish our cherished idols. I pray for strength for that decision and the decisions that need to be made this week by all those in attendance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.